Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Would you please join me as I pray for our time opening the scriptures together? So gracious God and Father, we've just heard your your word read over us, and we're asking you right now to graciously pour out your Holy Spirit on us, the same Spirit that inspired these words, that is alive and well and on the move in this room. I pray that he would plumb the depths of our souls and apply this text to us truly, that we would be transformed. That God, where, where we are a people whose words are not in alignment with your character and your design for us as a people, that you would convict us and expose us and transform us, that we would be <clears throat> people whose words are a, a fountain of living water in the world, and that you would use us as a result of sitting at the feet of King Jesus and being changed by his words. <clears throat> so we thank you in advance for what you intend to do in these moments. God, would you please open your word, even as you open our hearts and our minds and our ears, so that we might receive it. I ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's exhausting, is it not, trying to, trying to discern truth? Try to figure out what, in fact, is true in a moment where it feels like there is so much information and it's not always clear if the information is trustworthy or not, and always trying to be the arbiter of that, trying to be the one that's discerning that can be really exhausting. Ashley and I have had that conversation about different topics over the last few years, and as we wrestle with it together and going, how do you even discern? You know, you, you read a news story from this side and from this side, and you talk to an expert or you listen to a friend, or, and all of a sudden, it's, it's not just one issue, it's like all the issues. How do, how do we discern truth in a world where it feels like trustworthiness has eroded and everyone has an angle and an agenda and we're trying to figure out, well, which agenda do you have and how do I make sense of that and situate it with the information I got over here? And It can be a really exhausting endeavor trying to wade through what feels like a sea of polluted words, oceans of polluted words that aren't entirely trustworthy. And as I've been sitting with this text and meditating on that reality, that sort of reality that has occurred time and again throughout history and in different cultures, and whenever it shows up where, where deception becomes commonplace, where it's hard to discern truth, people become skeptical and they, they kind of hunker down into little packs that they can agree with and it becomes very combative. And we, we feel that crouching at our door as a culture. We, we feel the weight of that. And I think this morning what Jesus is going to press in front of us is going to ask the question, in, in what way can we be distinct? You know, as we're studying Sermon on the Mount, we've called it I See Things Upside Down. It's Jesus' great sermon that he, the king from on high, who sees things properly and rightly, his vision runs counter to so much of what we are delivered in the world. And so when he speaks about sexuality or anger or this week about our words, we feel like we're being flipped upside down because he sees things so differently. And in a sea of polluted words, he's going to invite us to become little 
little wellsprings of truth in life, little geysers of something different sprouting out in the world. They say, which I'm not sure who they are and I'm not sure how they know, but they say that you will speak somewhere between 400 and 500 million words in your lifetime. That feels like a big number to me. Uh, and that that's, that's about 15,000 a day on average. So here we are as a people, as individuals, and then as a community that are stewarding 15,000 words every day that will turn into hundreds of millions over a lifetime. A wash and a sea of the way that words are being used and misused, uh, that are actually tearing at the fabric of society. And the question for me today, as we sit at the feet of Jesus, is how can we steward our little piece of that puzzle, the words that we are going to speak into the world in such a way that it breeds something different, that it actually, like leaven in the dough, produces life and health, and it rebuilds community rather than tearing at the fabric of community, that we actually have the potential to do that with our words. Kingdom people are different. Kingdom women and kingdom men are, are people of their word, that when they say something, they do it. They are trustworthy and integrous. They are distinct from this sea of pollution that we're talking about, that, that they actually, they speak differently in the world. And so what I want us to do is pay attention to this text. Matthew 5, 33-37. I think what Jesus is going to give is a one-two punch, kind of a, a, a right foot, left foot, here's the path for you to be a person and for us to be a community whose words are very different than the, than the malaise of disbelief and, and of um, questionable intention, that we actually can speak in a way that, that produces life and health and joy and rebuilds community and society. And so the invitation today is going to think about what do kingdom people's words sound like? And we're just going to look at two simple things step one and step two that Jesus is going to provide for us. They're really simple, so simple that we'll be tempted to step right over them or step past them, but I'm going to invite us to slow down and try to pay attention to what Jesus is saying in hopes that we would be kingdom people who speak differently in the world. Well, the first thing that I think we're going to see is Jesus' invitation to speak simply. I think that's the first step, to speak simply. Look back with me at verse 33 through 36. It says this, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, this quotation is not a direct Old Testament quotation, as some of the other quotations in previous weeks have been. But it is an amalgamation of a couple of different laws from the Old Testament that Jesus is saying, Generally, you've heard this from several different places, that if you're going to swear something, you need to follow through on it. And what we know is that this teaching, this combination of several different places in the law, has become something that religious leaders are teaching and misusing. And so we'll see some of the ways they're doing that. Jesus is laying hold of all of that, and then with great authority saying, but I say to you something different. I say to you something fuller and truer. Let's see what he has to say. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Now, what Jesus is talking about is a, a first century practice that has developed that is kind of an elaborate equation for how to communicate to someone that you're actually speaking in a truthful way. He comes back to it again in Matthew 23, making it clear that it actually has become quite elaborate in the way that the religious leaders leverage these oaths. The idea being that sometimes when they're just speaking, they're like somewhat trustworthy. But what they really want you to truly know that I'm really telling truly the truth, truly, right? Like they, they had these very elaborate equations like, I swear by Jerusalem, by heaven, by my head. By the time you get to Matthew 23, he's even more specific and he says that they'll say things like, well, a, a promise by the temple doesn't count, but if I swear by the gold of the temple, now you know I'm serious. And so this had become kind of commonplace in the first century, especially among the religious individuals, that this is how they were mustering believability and authority. And the closer they got to the presence of God or the name of God, they were actually invoking God in a sense to say, I'm not just talking about the temple, but the inner sanctum, the gold of the temple. Not just the, not just the, uh, the altar, but the sacrifice on the altar. The closer they were getting to the things of God, that's when you know they were really serious. As if to say, now God is present and God is listening, so I promise I'm telling you the truth. And into that place, Jesus is going to speak about the, the way that we deal very differently. He's going to call us to speak simply. And I think there's, there's three different ways to think about speaking simply from this text. The first is, he's going to say, hey, let's eliminate religious jargon. Like the pious jargon that we lay hold of to prove to people that we're authoritative and trustworthy. My guess is, I'm going out on a limb here. My guess is that none of you have sworn by the gold of the temple this week to prove how trustworthy you are. That's probably not like a pressing temptation for us. But I think there's a principle under it that Jesus is getting at. What he's saying is if you need to try to lay hold of anything to get other people to actually believe that you're telling the truth, there's something probably already off in your character and the degree to which you have to go to the well of kind of this pious jargon to get people to think that you're really holy and good, beware of that. What I mean is, if we have to constantly say to people things like, well, I just have this, I have this discomfort in my spirit, I need to, I need to speak this to you, which, which you could, and maybe you do need to speak that, but sometimes rather than just telling people what we're thinking, we've got to couch it in religious terms and convince them of, wow, I've been praying for you day and night about this. And maybe we have, and if you have, you need to tell them. That would be encouraging. But I find that oftentimes, in my own heart and in religious community, we can start to play this game, trying to get everyone to know just how holy we are. I've really been praying about this. When maybe you thought about it last night when you were falling asleep, and you're not really sure if you talked to God about it, but now you've really been praying about it, right? Or, God forbid, the divine breakup. I don't think God wants us to be together anymore. <laughs> like, Jesus is cutting through all of that stuff, and he's going, hey, quit putting it all on God. Quit being pious and trying to muster authority. Tell the truth. Yes, can be, yes could, be, could mean yes, no could mean no. You could just be a person of integrity that doesn't try to have to garner all of this holy language so that people will know you really are trustworthy. You really are serious. Um, I think 
I think we need to be careful, especially, I, I love being in a community where people do pray for one another. And I'm not, I don't want it to, to become taboo to say that. I'm not trying to make you feel awkward for saying that. We should pray for one another and tell one another that we are. But playing these pious religious language games so that people will go, oh, wow, they're really serious about their faith. The idea was that these religious leaders were speaking in such a way where they were like elevating it, one above the other. Well, I say the gold of the temple. It's almost like a Christmas story when they're out on the, on the playground and the one kid sticks his tongue to the, gold, to the frozen pole. You remember that scene? If you haven't seen it, the you know, schoolyard boys are going back and forth and then one finally says, I triple dog dare you. And they're all like, <gasps> now I'm serious. Like, the religious leaders are going, they're speaking in such a way that they're going, now God is present. God told me this. He showed up. I'm swearing by the gold of the temple. Anything that we feel like we have to get a hold of to go, God's now paying attention, so you have to as well. The text is saying, maybe something's gone awry if we actually have to try to muster that sort of language to be believable. You see, I think we need to eliminate religious jargon. The second thing that I think this text might commend to us is this. I think maybe we just need to speak less. Maybe we just need to speak less altogether. If we're going to understand what it means to speak simply, maybe we need to lay down religious jargon, and maybe we just need to say fewer things. If you look back at verse 37, it says this. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It seems like there's a real emphasis on the brevity that just say yes or no. Don't, don't keep going. Don't keep spinning. Don't say more and more. Uh, I apologize in advance for reading this verse to you. Uh, Matthew 12, verse 36. This is a tough one. Jesus later says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Yikes. That Jesus actually says there will be a day where we give account for every word. And what we will be coming into, we will be stepping into reality that it's not only when I claim the presence of God that God is listening. He's been listening to every word. I, I haven't needed to swear by the gold of the temple. He was present and paying attention to every aside. Every careless or idle word, he heard it all. The one where you demeaned that person when they weren't looking, when you went for the, the humorous kind of low-hanging fruit to the person next to you, the things that you thought no one heard, the like every word, God's going, it's all been heard, and you will give an account before the presence of the holy God that made you and made that person you were speaking about. Proverbs 10, 19 makes it really plain. It says, it says this, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. So whoever restrains their lips is prudent. What he's saying is, it would just be really wise just to, just to say less. Just, just quit. I've felt this tension. I, I do training for church planters here in our facility, and we, I hosted some this last week. I'll be starting with a new group on Tuesday, and these are planters from all around the area. And they'll come and hear some of our story, and they'll look around and uh, see this cool 100-year-old school that we're trying to make home. And you can tell that there's a certain amount of like, oh, wow, this is really great. Tell me about this. And my temptation is to just say too much. 
to get my fingerprints on the glory of God, acting like what's happened around here and the lives that have been changed are because of me. And I want to tell stories where I, I keep going, you know. I just need to stop and answer the question with a yes or a no and try to be helpful. But I start hitting like, you know where you start hitting the highlights? You're just editing to kind of grab the highlights and tell those stories. And you're weaving a story that has too many words and it's too much about how great you are. I found myself doing that to the point where I'll find that church planners are starting to believe that Seven Mile Road is like Shangri-La. It's like perfect. And the truth is, I love it. I love this body. I would do, I'm so thankful I get to pastor this church, but we're not perfect. But the truth is that we have the, the ability, when we don't speak simply, it can feel like a little bit of spin, a little bit too much. Like sometimes I just need to stop speaking. That maybe speaking simply for you means you need to lay down your religious jargon, or maybe it means that you just need to say less. You need to stop trying to spin all the reasons why it's a yes or a no and trying to fill it out with all of your crafty words. And Jesus is going, people of integrity, people of wholeness, they don't have to operate like that. They can just say it. You see, I think speaking simply is eliminating pious jargon. I think it's speaking less. And I, one other note I'd add here is this. I think it also includes being willing to disappoint being willing to disappoint. Look at verse 37. I just want to highlight one word in it. It says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I think just an awareness piece for our own moment in time that I think no is particularly hard. I think we are a people that have bought the lie that we can be limitless with our technology and our connection and we think we can be everywhere and do everything. And so I think there's a lot of yeses that are not malicious. I think we all speak a lot of yeses that weren't malicious. We weren't trying to wound people, but it was a really poorly founded yes. We didn't slow down long enough. We didn't stop talking long enough. We didn't lay it aside and actually become an honest assessor. Are you going to be there? Are you going to follow through? Can I trust you to do this thing? Will you deliver on that thing we talked about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can count on me. I'm there. And that yes that wasn't malicious actually tears at the fabric of society and at the fabric of your own integrity if you're not careful. Because people will start to go, yeah, we'll see. I've heard that yes before, and I've been left waiting or you didn't show up or you didn't follow through. You came to the first one, but the next 10 you said I'm out on. Like, that a yes actually starts to mean nothing unless we say, I, I swear on grandmommy's grave, I will be there. And you're like, oh, okay, now you're serious. Right? Wherever there's two levels of truthfulness, what I usually say and what I say when I'm really serious, what, it, what he's inviting us to do is we, we want to be willing to disappoint. Sometimes we just need to tell the truth and say the answer is no. No, I'm not coming. No, I'm not going to be there. It might even be, no, I don't want to. You don't have to push it off on some pious jargon of like, well, I really prayed about it, and I don't feel good about it in my spirit, and so I'm not going to be there. And you just keep talking as opposed to going, you know what? I really don't want to do that. The answer is no. People of integrity, kingdom people, speak differently. They're not marked by spin. They're not marked by false, pious language and lots and lots of words and an unwillingness to disappoint. And, and I want to just ask the question, if any of those ideas about 
how, how we might be convicted or we might be exposed in the way that we don't speak simply, I just want to ask the question under the question. If you're constantly speaking too much, filling all of this space in the conversation, if you're constantly weaving pious jargon, if you're unwilling ever to say no, even to the point where you're saying yes to things that you know in the back of your mind you can't deliver on, my question is why? Why are we these kind of people? What is it that we need for other people to think about us that causes us to communicate in this way? Like needing others to think we're so smart, we're so accomplished, we're so together, we're so holy. We're inviting people like play this charade with us to make me okay. So I'm going to communicate in this way, and if you'll let me, and then you'll, you'll kind of endorse it, and then we can all feel better about ourselves because we can construct these language games that insulate us from reality. And Jesus is going, well, would we be just honest enough to just be kind of yes and no people? To just speak the truth? You see, the first thing that I think Jesus would say is that we need to speak simply. We need to lay those things down. We need to speak simply. And the second thing that I think he'd say is this, and then we just need to do what we say. If we would speak simply and do what we say, what Jesus is going to reveal is that this is the path to being kingdom people, to stewarding our 15,000 words very differently. Look back with me at verse 33 and 34, the, the first part. It says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear false... <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So what is Jesus saying here? It's not that he's saying don't follow through and do what you said. He's just saying it shouldn't require an oath on the front end. The idea being that if you are a kingdom person, you don't in a moment of intensity need to say, now God is really listening. You actually walk through all of life as if you have just been sworn in. Like your hand was just on the Bible and you were just in front of the judge and going, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. He's not saying, don't, it's not that you can't ever do that. He's just saying you should act like you've always done that. So he's saying, if you need an oath to convince someone, you've lost sight of the fact that God hears it all. He's present to it all. You're always sworn in. Over the years, there have been different Christian teachings on this text that have said Christians can't take any public oath, which I don't think is what Jesus is saying. Because God himself forges covenants with people, God takes oaths, and he invites people to take oaths with him throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks under oath while on trial. Paul takes an oath in the epistles that, that Christians take oaths publicly and, and your promises made solemnly before friends, family, and God are what make you who you are. When you stand on your wedding day and you make a, an oath, a promise that I'll be here again tomorrow, it is your commitments and your public promises that help give shape to your identity. So Jesus is not saying don't ever take a public oath. What he is saying is live like you're always under oath and follow through with such intensity that you would, you would always fulfill the fact that you are always under oath. You'll always carry out what is said, that you will do what you say. Uh, it's kind of like elementary math, which I've been doing a little bit of these days. Third and fifth graders, I'm, I'm trying to remember. So we're just getting to the age where it's like, I don't quite remember all of this. Um, 
But I do remember this, an integer, an integer is the, from the same root word as integrity. You remember what an integer is, right? It's a whole number, not a fraction, not a piece. And the idea of integrity is that you are whole. You're a whole person in every place where you go. Because you're always sworn in, because your yes and your no is always trustworthy in every place where you're delivered, you're never fractured. You're never one person with your friends from work when you go get a drink after work and a different when you're a person when you're hanging out with your house church. You're a person whose yes is yes and no is no because you're a whole person. Or when you're filling out your expense reports, you're filling out your expense reports for business as if there was a hand on the Bible and you were before the judge going, yeah, that is, when I say that was a business expense that's rightfully reimbursed, I am always sworn in. And so that is trustworthy. You see, the, the idea is that as an integer, as a whole person, in every place, you are operating in the light with freedom and fullness, stewarding your 15,000 words in a way that they spring up in the world and they feel and sound and taste totally different because they produce life where they show up. You see, this is the invitation to be a people that speak simply and then as kingdom men and women of integrity, we, we do what we say. We say it simply and then we do it. Now, it's important at this point to pause and to zoom out and to feel the weight of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we feel it? Like, this is rugged territory for your soul. I hope we can be honest about that. That as Jesus is declaring, I see things upside down, he is pressing into places over and over and over that leave us feeling rather exposed and raw if we will deal honestly with the text. He has just dealt with us about our sexuality and said it's not just about what you do with your bodies. It's every single thought. It's all the way down to the hidden place of your soul. Are you pursuing purity? And when he talks about anger, he's not just saying red-faced anger, but are you being dismissive and are you wounding others in the internal thoughts that you carry around with you through life? And then we come to this moment where he's talking about honesty and he's going... Every single word has been heard by God and will be given account for before his throne one day. And he even stops along the way to make comments like, and by the way, you have to be perfect like my father is perfect. And your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. All of a sudden, we come through this terrain and it is rugged terrain for our souls. There was a movement in the church about 100 years ago uh, that has different trains of thought that have continued to, to exert influence in the life of the church. But it was ultimately just a desire to, to distance oneself from any meaningful theological assertions and saying, hey, let's just get back to the basics. We're just going to look at Jesus and say that the good news is that Jesus has showed us the right way to live. That's the good news of the church. Let's just be moral people. And that, that kind of sliver that movement said, let's lay hold of the Sermon on the Mount and just say, that, that's the stuff we can really trust. If, if we just have the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount and we commit to that together, that's how we can really experience the good news of Jesus. And I just want to hit pause for a second and say, if that's all we've got, it's devastating news. This is not good news that Jesus is saying, hey, here's what it means to be good, now come and do this. 
Because week after week, as we sit with the text, and as the text is open to us, and then all of a sudden we are opened up by the text, we go, oh no. Oh no, I'm riddled with, with sexual sin and anger and a lack of integrity, and I'm exposed before a holy God. And what we realize is that Jesus is preaching through the Sermon on the Mount very intentionally. And I just want to remind us of the context that the very first note when he started this sermon, way back when we were studying the Beatitudes last spring, the first note was, blessed are the bankrupt of soul. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Theirs are the blessings of God. And then he proceeds to preach in such a way that is going to convince the one who will listen that you are, in fact, bankrupt of soul. Because he wants you to receive the blessings of God, the fullness of the riches of heaven. But the truth is, it's only available to those that have been laid low and realize, I am desperate and I cannot rescue myself. If you have been strolling through life believing that, yeah, I'm pretty good, I can basically deliver myself in the midst of all this, the Sermon on the Mount is week after week saying otherwise. And the invitation this morning, the invitation each time you open your Bible, like when we gather here and Lord willing and the quiet moments throughout the week when you take time to hear from God, the invitation is to read the text and to in response to it say, where do I need to repent and to believe the good news of the gospel again? And this morning, the work that we have to do is to repent of the ways that our words have not been simple and we have not followed through on them. The way that we have not been people of integrity. The way that our words have slowly meant less and less as we multiply them more and more. And in that place, the invitation this morning is to admit the brokenness of the thousands of words that are spilling out of our mouth that are contributing to the the sea of pollution that we're in. But then after admitting our brokenness, we don't stop there. We turn and we believe on Jesus. That I just want you to consider for a second the trustworthiness of Jesus. That Jesus, unlike us, he spoke the truth all the way down to the bottom even when it was tremendously costly. Even when his life is on the line, he continues to speak the truth and only the truth because he was always sworn in, always aware of the presence of God. And it was the pious religious jargon and the deceptiveness of the false witnesses and actually all of our deception and our lies that were swallowing him on the cross and he drank it all the way down to the dregs. And down there at the bottom, he was doing battle with the author of all lies, John 8, called Satan, the accuser, the one whose native tongue is lies. Jesus was breaking his back at Calvary and he was putting the weight of sin and grief and death in a grave. And then he came back to life with resurrection power, saying, I will beautify you with my love. All you have to admit, listen, the only place, right, that you need to actually be honest in God's presence is by saying, I've been dishonest. Just finally own up to the fact you don't have it all together. And in his presence, as you declare that and you believe in the resurrected king of, uh, king of all, what he says is this, is my love will make you new. And as we believe in him as Savior and confess him as Lord, what begins to happen is his grace infuses our soul. Truly, he cleanses you and he makes you fresh. 
You're filled with His Holy Spirit, and we actually are empowered to walk out into the world and to become little geysers of living water, pouring out life and truth because He is coursing through us, not because we accomplished it, but because by His grace, He is making it true of us that when we say yes, people go, oh, that means yes. And when we say no, they go, ah, that's a trustworthy no. And they know that we will follow through because we have become kingdom people, integers, (laughs) integrated wholes, not fractions, not fractured at the core of who we are. May we be the sort of people by the power of Jesus that speak simply and do what we say. Let me pray for us.